All right. There will be bourbon. There will be Dale Stark, America's favorite A10 pilot. How are we doing, brother? There we go. Call signs up. Nice. <laughs> How you doing tonight, man? Doing good, man. How are you? I am great. Uh, so as always, tonight's discussion will be fueled by America's native spirit. And in the, uh, I guess, kind of in the honor of you, since you are up in the, the great state of Oregon, we're going to go with a little, little local product, little Oregon spirit distillers. Uh, they're from Bend. I don't know how close you are to there or if, you, if you've been to this distillery or not, Dale. I don't know if you even drink anymore at this point, but you don't have to. You familiar with this distillery, though? Uh, no, I'm not. No, okay. uh, I haven't. I've been to Bend, but I haven't been yeah. there. Cool, it's right there. That's it's not that far from downtown. It's actually really cool. I went there actually in 2020, um, in February, and this was right before the world came crashing down. <laughs> so it was a very interesting time. May or may not have caught uh, something up there and brought it back to the state of California, but yeah, so that was a good time. Um, so yeah, so that's that's what I got going on tonight. Uh, this, so this is, I believe it's, it's a straight American ribbon. So I think it's four years old. They don't really have the age statement on here, but the distillery is nice. Very, uh, very user-friendly if you go in there and actually visit it. Um, great local dudes. Uh, everything's done right there on the property. It's not a huge distillery, but they, uh, they put out a good product and they got a lot of different expressions now at this point. So that's what I will be getting down on. Uh, did you ever used to have like a flask in your, in your, your A-10 that you flew? Like, do, do pilots do that? Yeah. You know, they issue you these little like G-suit <laughs> flasks. Uh, you're supposed to carry water in it though. Not alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's, what's kind of interesting. So you've kind of got like two very interesting paths that you've kind of come to be known to people like myself on Twitter and kind of those that run in our extended you know, circle of trust. And one of them was, you know, you were an A-10 pilot before. Uh, and then you've retired. Uh, what, you've been retired about two years now, going on a year and a half or kind of transitioned? Uh, a little, yeah, a little less than that. I was um, kind of going back and forth between uh, being on active duty and setting this place up for the yeah. last few months I was in. And then um, been out here for like a few months full time now. Okay. Yeah. And that's the other thing that I, I want to have a really good conversation with you about is, um, I, I mean, I don't even know what you call it. What are you, are you farming? Are you just got living off the land? Like what you've got, you've got everything going on. Are they llamas? Are they alpacas? What do you got going on there? I've got a, you know, a couple llamas, uh, a little bit of cattle, some ducks. Uh, yeah. You know, so we've got 58 acres. Um, 58. So wow. Yeah, so it's you know you can call it, it's kind of like that in between phase where uh, it's not a full like ranch if you will, but it's bigger than most uh, the yeah. homestead properties. So you're so, not quite you're not quite uh, the Yellowstone compound, but you're almost there. You've got the yeah, cat, exactly. and you've got yeah, the we're, ducks. We're working on it. <laughs> so that's great. All right, so before we get into that, let, let's back it all the way up because I mean I've seen enough of your posts over the years that you you know. I think your it seems like your path into the military is very similar to a lot of people. Didn't really have an eye of doing that. Wasn't really in the cards. What definitely wasn't plan A. What like it wasn't for me. And you kind of came from. Are you from Oregon? Is that where you grew up? Yeah, I mean we moved around a lot. So, uh, you know, by the time I graduated high school, we had lived in like eighteen different houses. Oh wow! So a lot of moving, but I consider this home because I was yeah. born here. This is like where I graduated high school and. 
most of my friends are here so this is home but there was a lot of moving in between yeah um and, and you were obviously into surfing like you were just about to do before you got on the podcast right so i imagine surfing in the pacific ocean was a very interesting uh experience for you very different than the the east coast surfing cruise that i circled around in i couldn't surf at all so what was surfing for you as a kid you know my dad was a surfer so um he just started taking me as soon as i could basically swim so you know and he's like more old school type of training if you will so uh he never taught me um like he didn't specifically go out and give me instructions on here's how you surf it was just like you're old enough if you want to go with me you're welcome to and if you survive then you'll probably be pretty (laughs) even better right yeah so he just he'd go surf with his buddies and i could go along with him so just something i started doing at a pretty young age and eventually um you know, as soon as I had a license, started going all the time by myself. And just, you know, when you're in the Air Force, I, you know, wasn't really stationed on the coast much. But when I'd come home or take a trip to San Diego or Hawaii, I'd try to try to stay with it a little bit. But just something I kind of did off and on through the years since then. So so dad wasn't in the military at all or was he before? No, no, nope, so never served. Anybody in the family that kind of led you down this path? Like what made you choose to to go in not just the air force but what made you decide to go into the military yeah so um i barely graduated high school so i was a terrible student had no vision or focus or uh anything i just you know it was just like a normal kid from a small town who uh had very little direction or goals or anything like that so uh, I get to that end of high school phase and I'm just kind of hanging out in my hometown trying to figure out what to do next. I uh, I went to community college mm-hmm. for like a couple of years. So now I'm going to school, working part time. Uh, I was on like a wrestling scholarship. So trying to balance all these things and it really was not working for me. So um, my parents are more like old school. So it's like, all right, dude, you got to pay rent or get a job. Like, yeah. I don't know what you're doing right now, but it's not cutting it. So uh, figure it out. You know, we'll, we'll help you if you need it, but uh, you're not living here kind of thing. So I was just out doing the kind of couch surfing. Um, you know, sometimes I'd like, I had a 79 Volvo station wagon with a futon in the back. I'd just <laughs> crash at the beach. You know, I was, I was just like hitting that early adulthood and just, start feeling the pressure of being a total loser so yeah. go man like, like what year was this uh, i graduated in nine i'm so, sorry cut out a second you gra- 99 you said yeah i graduated okay. high school in 97 and then oh, 97. Uh, then i hung around for another couple of years and then enlisted in 99 okay so, so- yeah basically just hit a, a brick wall just yeah. dead end nothing working for me felt like a total loser and so uh started looking basically for you know way to pull the handles and eject out of that situation and uh started talking to recruiters so uh i talked to the marines i talked to the army and i talked to the air force and uh in that order uh yeah it really was (laughs) (laughs) that's kind of funny but uh at first i was I'm pretty convinced I wanted to join the Marines, you know, be yeah. one of the few, the proud. Yeah, they're they're you know, great. They're great sellers. They really are. Yeah, I mean, they, they look sharp. They're badasses. Yeah. You're like, man, that, that would be pretty cool to be a Marine. Um, but then on the flip side, 
I'm, you know, I'm such a loser at this point. I start thinking like, well, maybe I should try to like acquire uh, a skill, uh, something that could lead to uh, a job on the outside once I get yeah. out. And so kind of went through the, uh, you know, like I said, the different recruiters, talk to the army a little bit, see what, uh, what they had to offer, talk to the air force. And the guy there kind of keyed in on what I was, what I was interested in. And he's like, yeah, man, uh, we can guarantee you an aircraft maintenance spot. You can do your four-year enlistment. Uh, and then you'll be AMP qualified. You'll be able to go to an airline, whatever it is you want to do. Yeah. Uh, you'll have this you know, wonderful career in the Air Force and after you get out. So at that point, kind of the practical decision outweighed um, some of the other goals I had. So uh, I just enlisted uh, in the Air Force as a C-17 mechanic. Kind of, and that's, what, that's really where I started. And so I, I picked up on what you said was the practical decision was the one that kind of weighed out for you. Um, and so this 20 years old, give or take. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't have that practical decision because <laughs> I joined around the same, same age as you, but I was just a bonus. I'll take it. Let's go. Where we yeah. Going? Send it. Yeah. No, that's good. Okay. So, um, so what, so you're, you're coming from a small town in Oregon. You said you, you, now you're in the air force, you, you ship off to where does basic training for you? Where do they do that? Uh, Lackland air force base in San okay, Antonio, San Antonio. Okay. How was that for you? So yeah, it, you're it a wrestler. Like, so you were an athlete already. So you, I would imagine the physical stuff wasn't an issue, but yeah, it was a good fit. You know, I yeah. like, I, I thought it was easy. Um, you know, you know how basic is like everybody yeah. comes from everywhere. Yeah. Um, doesn't really matter where you started, what your grades were, what kind of challenges you had before you got there. And everyone's basically on an even playing field. So, um, so it was just a good fit. You know, the physical fitness stuff was a piece of cake yeah. coming out of two years of, of college wrestling. Right. And um, yeah, I just, I, I enjoyed it, you know, in the military, everything spelled out for you. So it's clear, like tasks laid before you and measurable standards. Yeah. And uh, I was just kind of good at it, you know, good at the military, yeah. um, like game, if you will. Yeah. Like the military yeah. lifestyle suited me. Yeah. yeah I, and I, I remember, think like, go ahead. Oh, sorry, brother. I was just going to say, I remember like getting my first paycheck as an E1, you know, and it's, it's like 400 bucks <laughs> yeah, every two weeks. Or something. <laughs> yeah. And I felt like I was rich. I'm like, I don't yeah. have to pay for housing. I don't have to pay for food. Um, and I'm getting paid you know, on the first and the 15th, this is like all bonus. I don't have any expenses. Yeah. And it was just like, wow, this, this is pretty cool. So you didn't go buy the, you know, the, the 30% Dodge charger or whatever sports car that was available at the time. You just, you kind of held on to the money a little bit. Yeah. You know, I was like, uh, that's how you have 58 acres, that path. right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So this, obviously I, I would assume, like you said, basic training probably wasn't much of a challenge for you physically. Um, the mental side, again, if you were coming from a wrestling background, I don't assume that would have been, you know, that difficult for you once you get over it. Everyone has a little culture shock initially until they, you know, figure out what they're doing. Um, so where'd you go for, to go learn your, your actual job? Where'd you learn that at? Yeah. So, uh, tech schools in Wichita Falls, Texas. Hmm. Okay, so you stayed in Texas. Yeah, Shepherd Air Force Base. And uh, I would say there's when the, like the first seed was planted towards possibly becoming a pilot because yeah. that's a pilot training base 
uh, for the Air Force. So, okay. you know, while I'm going through training there, I'm, you know, covered in grease and hydraulic fluid and looking up at these T-38s going like, okay, I'm down here. Like, that looks way cooler than what I'm doing. Like, yeah. I, how did, you know, how did they get there? And, you know, I started just kind of thinking about that at that point. Do a lot of guys go that path or is that something that most just do the, the maintenance side and then they, they either get out or stick with that? Cause I'll be honest, like, especially coming from the recruiting side and starting to learn all these different programs, that's definitely something you would try to like, we'd get a lot of guys on the army side of, you know, coming as a, a, a helicopter pilot or a maintenance on the helicopters first, and then you can transition to the warrant or commission and become a pilot, which a lot of them do. And then, as you said, that kind of transfers over to the civilian side very easily, but most people don't know that or don't follow that path. So I was just curious from the, the Air Force side, is that, do they get a lot of pilots from that side of it or is that a little um, conventional? I mean, it wasn't unheard of, but I wouldn't say it was very common, at yeah. least in kind of my era. Like throughout my career, I maybe met a couple people that were prior enlisted. Yeah. Um, but usually it's through the academy or through an ROTC program. So, okay. But, so you know, the, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say the opportunities are there, uh, but there's such a like bureaucratic nightmare that I think a lot of people give up as they're pursuing yeah, it because that, that it's so big. much paperwork. Yeah. Yeah. And back then it was paperwork. Now it's just actually digital, right? Where everything gets low. Oh, I didn't open the email or something, but yeah. Um, no, that's true because, you know, there's a lot of guys that I've come across with and even in my own career where it's just, there's people who don't want to do the work to do something like that for some people or to do the work for another program specifically. And that kind of is very discouraging because of what's required. Sometimes just you have to have somebody willing to do the work and it's not only just you that has to do your part. There's got to be someone to process that along the way to get you in front of the right people. And that sometimes can be kind of, discouraging is a very like easy word to come to, but it's not just discouraging. It's sometimes it's just, it's a little demoralizing when you don't necessarily get, I guess the response you're looking for, or maybe the initial answers that you're hoping to hear. And then you still realize, Oh, well, I still got this contract. I got to live out. Right. Cause it's not like, it's not like a normal job. If you, you want to leave, you, you just leave. You don't, you have to, you know, hold out whatever it is you were doing from a contract side. So with that being said, and and you laying out how, okay, you were there doing the maintenance side and starting to actually see like, hey, maybe this is a path I could go into from the pilot side. How did you go about that transition? Yeah, so <clears throat> finished tech school and then uh, went on to Charleston, South Carolina, where they nice. fly C-17s. Yeah. yeah, pretty good duty if you can get it. So uh, yeah, I'm Charleston. And uh, at that point, um, I just, like I said, kind of reverse engineered what it took to become a pilot. So, all right, you need a four-year degree. You need to score well in the standardized test. You need physical fitness standards. Um, you need your commander's recommendation. So, you know, it's very clear the things that you need to make that happen. And um, so I started, you know, taking classes uh, and just doing things to make steps in that direction. So, uh, you know, I started doing some private flying to kind of um, up my aptitude score, if you will. Yeah. So like I said, just looking at all the different components that took uh, for that pilot application and then started working to shore up those areas. So, you know, going back to school um, now being a little bit older, a little more experience under my belt, 
uh, go from barely, you know, graduating high school, doing terrible in community college to now basically again, straight A's, you know, because yeah, highly that. motivated, <laughs> yeah, a little more mature and um, just kind of start getting that, that bad background a little bit further in the rear view mirror and start stacking up good grades, good test scores, uh, you know, good overall application. And you start looking at it like, Hey man, I could actually be pretty competitive. This might be achievable if I, if I keep going for it. So you mentioned the C-17s in Charleston. So is that why I'm guessing this is why if anyone who spent any time overseas, like every C-17, you see the South Carolina flag on the tail, right? Okay. Cause those were always my favorite. Um, and it always seemed to be, uh, it always seemed to be South Carolina C-17 that we'd be getting on or off of. Um, what year is that, that you, so uh, I'm just curious because you joined pre 9-11. So a lot of this stuff post 9-11 was probably taking place for you. So I was just curious how that was from an air force side. Cause most guys we get on and talk to on here that are in the same age range as us or who's, careers kind of went pre and then post 9-11 it's always usually the army side so it's very different so i was just curious how that was for you as a you know a young maintenance dude seeing 9-11 seeing kind of the the shift from afghanistan to iraq how'd that go yeah so uh so i'm a young maintenance dude it uh you know in 2000 2001 yeah. 2001 i put in my pilot training application okay so i was only enlisted for a year and a half um, and when I got picked up on an ROTC scholarship, okay. so I was in Charleston for about a year. So I separated from active duty to go back uh, to school to finish okay. my degree under yeah. an ROTC program. And, um, I was released in August of 2001. So oh, I watched nine 11 happen <laughs> yes. as a yeah. brand new student, like oh, in the damn. cafeteria in the morning, you know, that, oh, that shit. morning. So. So what did you think? Did you think you made the wrong decision at the time? Like, man, I could be in already doing something and getting ready to go. Or did you think like this might be more of where you should be? No, I, I feel good about it because um, I, you know, I was on a two year ROTC program mm -hmm. and our detachment commander was this like badass AC-130 guy. He had a, a ton of experience for his yeah. era, you know, like yeah. anytime the, the AC was like in a shooting war, he, he was a part of it kind of guy. Mm. And um, he told us, he's like, this event will shape the rest of your lives. Like, this is not going to be a quick, yeah. um, you know, a quick thing. And I don't know if I fully appreciated that at the time. Yeah. Um, but I was just like, okay, like, here we go. Like, let's, let's keep pushing forward on this. And, get through pilot training so we can start contributing. So when, when did you finally start doing quote unquote contributing? Like, oh, how did that go? Uh, yeah. So obviously the aircraft and everything that you got into, how'd that go? Yeah. So it's, it's kind of a long path. You know, I had two years to finish my degree uh, doing ROTC. So I did that. Uh, and then I got a pilot slot, which, uh, which again was my, my main goal out of there. And that worked out. So graduate commission as a um, second lieutenant off to pilot training in like 2003. And okay. then, um, you know, you get put in the um, kind of like standby waiting for a start date. So between delays and between courses and everything that, you know, I do um, um, start, you know, pilot training sometime around 2003. And then 
finished that in like 2005. And so that's when I, wow. um, oh, Is sorry, that- uh, 2004, uh, and then start training in the A-10 in 2005. So how did you get, how did you end up in the A-10? Because that doesn't seem like the most conventional of aircrafts, even though it's highly revered and people love it. But you don't mean not every day you see someone who was an A-10 pilot is my point. Yeah. So when I was going through uh, crew chief school, my instructor was an A-10 crew chief. Okay. So for the whole time I was with him, he just told us war stories about the A-10 and Desert Storm. So uh, the A-10 is a very simple aircraft to work on. So we we worked on a lot in training. So, you know, I'm sitting in the cockpit of this uh, A-10, you know, decommissioned A-10 aircraft that is being used for training. Yeah. And um, and I'm hearing all these stories. And he's uh, the way he's explaining, like describing the A-10 community is like a bunch of rebellious bastards who the Air Force hates. And, <laughs> but they're, you know, they're still awesome and get the mission done. And uh, all the, you know, all the tanks they destroyed. And, you know, you're you're like, young guy and this just this is like jet fuel for your motivation so <laughs> i'm like dude that's that's what i want to do i'm like i yeah. got i figured out a way to to fly this jet so go to pilot training you know and, and quickly learn that you don't get to choose what you want to do it's subject mm-hmm. to the needs of the air force so and um every level you know every time you level up the competition gets tougher so yeah you start out in the rotc and it, you know, a bunch of people apply for pilot training and then maybe like two or three people get a pilot slot. So then you go to pilot training and say you start with a class of like 30, 35 people. Well, at the end of the first six months, you get track select. So maybe in, in my era it was like five or six would get tracked for fighter bomber, they called it. So either going to fly, you know, F-16, F-15, A-10 um, or b 52 one so go on to fighter bomber track and now you're with like the six best guys in your class and you know and these are guys that like a lot of them are like star athletes yeah number one graduate from their engine you know their aerospace engineering program you thought that you wouldn't be over there you wouldn't be there with right yeah you're like how like where do they find these people they're (laughs) incredible yeah you know you know they have like you're like a little bit of work-life balance and they're, they're yeah. doing their studying and then they're spending time with their friends and family. And you're like, like, all right, dude, that's not me. Like mm-hmm. I'm, this is going to take like everything I have, like every ounce of my being just to be like average amongst these people. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I just keep pressing on, uh, you know, I had a terrible check ride at the beginning of T38s. So, uh, I basically started the program in dead last and like out of, you know, six people, if you're dead last, you're not going to get yeah. your number one choice. You're not going to get a 10. You're not going to get an F 15. Um, you're likely going to get a bomber. You're going to get a B 52 or something. Um, and you know, at the time, um, I was young and immature and I just, I felt to myself that anything less than like my number one choice was a complete failure and I didn't want to do it. So, yeah. so put, put a ton of pressure on myself, mm-hmm. um, kind of fought my way back from that early deficit. And then by the end, uh, you know, assignment night comes around and my flight commander brings me up there and he's like, 
he's like, dude, you're going, congratulations. You're going to fly the A-10. And uh, he's like, dude, you earned it. There was like, no way we couldn't give you your number one choice. So uh, off I went to go fly the hog. The hog. So let me back up. What's a T-38? That's Is that like where you guys train on? Is that the training aircraft? Yeah. So T-38, it's just like supersonic twin engine, two seat tandem seat jet. Okay. It's uh, supersonic. It's got a tiny wing. It's, it's really hard to fly, like, yeah. especially coming from um, like a slow aircraft and in, in primary training. And the next thing you know, like six flights in, you're sitting at the end of the runway in this supersonic aircraft by yourself, getting ready to solo. You're going like, how, like, how is this possible? Like, I pretty sure I can land. Like, yeah, my instructor says I'm good to go, but I, I I'm not a hundred percent sure that I have this thing on, you know, dialed in. So yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was a tough program. Um, but you know, at the same time, it was a lot of fun. Did you ever have any fear of the the flying aspect when you started? Cause you didn't, it didn't sound like you can, I know you started doing some small engine stuff before you got in this, but still, I mean, like flying's not for everyone. Right. <laughs> it's just, and most yeah. people don't like being on planes period. So I can only imagine where like you're, you're describing, Hey, it's just you now at this point in a plane, you're the only one responsible for taking off and landing. I'm sure there's this, there's gotta be some oh shit moments where you're like, all right, is this really what I want to do? Yeah, dude, I wanted it so bad. Cause yeah. you know, I go from this, this kid in Oregon who yeah. pretty much everyone wrote off as just a screw up, you know? Yeah. And then I start stacking these wins and yeah. now I'm getting all this positive feedback. Oh, I'm actually good at something, you know? Yeah. yeah My parents yeah. are proud of me. Like, yeah. and so I, I, I mean, I just, I've, thrived on that that um wanting to you know achieve that goal and again just like fear of being an abject loser so um there's nothing that would have deterred me like if i got airsick i probably would have just tried to hide it like you know like i would have gone through anything and i never really i mean i had a little bit of like a little anxiousness when i'm like the first time getting ready to take off the t-38 uh, but I never, I'd say I never really had any fear of flying. Like I, I loved it. I mean, my first solo in the T-38 was, is very memorable. So we have like a 10,000 foot block of altitude in our working space. Okay. And um, I'm like, okay, dude, I want to see what this thing can do. Like, uh, which is not what you're <laughs> supposed to do. Right. They're like, all right, dude. So you are Maverick. We make all the jokes and that's totally a Maverick move right there from Top Gun. Let's see what we can do with it. <laughs> They're like, dude, whatever you do, don't do anything dumb, dangerous, or different. Just go do what we rehearsed, yeah. you know? And uh, I'm like, okay, let's see what this thing can do. So I get to the very bottom of the block. I'm like, okay, I got lots of altitude above me. Put in full outer burner, get like as fast as I can go, point the nose like straight to the sun, go full aileron deflection. So I'm like flying up in the sky, like doing uh, aileron rolls in the vertical. I'm like, dude, this is, this is so awesome. Like, I'm, I'm like killing it right now. And then I look at my alt- altimeter and I'm like 5,000 feet out the top of my altitude block. <laughs> like, so I'm like in like airline territory. Oh my. So I like, I, I rip the throttles back, bring the nose down. And now I realize that I'm screaming at the ground and the T-38 has a massive turn radius because it has a giant wing. Okay. When in a massive turn radius. So now I'm like 
doing a maximum G turn as I come to the bottom of that the airspace block. And I barely like level out at the bottom of my airspace now. And I'm like, like, oh damn, what just happened? Like I'm gonna get like ejected from this program. So now I like yeah. set the throttles at 50%. I go to 30 degrees angle bank and just do like a circle for the next like 45 minutes. <laughs> and, like the, the most benign sorty. I come back. Uh, no issues in the pattern, no issues landing, taxi back. And I'm like, I walk in the building and I'm looking around going, okay, like, does anybody know? Is, yeah, is yeah I was going to say, someone had to know. Like, they're, I'm sure they know what you did. Like, it's not like, <laughs> it, it, like, I don't know if they just, yeah, they purposely don't like monitor it. Maybe it was, <laughs> it was like pre the time when they could just watch you on this screen with the like, data. Oh, with inside, yeah. The feedback, I'm like, didn't hear anything about it like okay press on to the next sortie <laughs> like it wow. never happened yeah i was waiting for the uh the the top gun moment where it's like, i want some butts you know lined <laughs> up outside the office uh wow. yeah that, that, that's that funny wild. man um all right so and then okay so you you managed to get your your first choice right was the a10 so then what's what's training like for that yeah so then off to uh tucson arizona to start flying the hog. And um, what I had to figure out was um, I get the, to the, what felt like to me to the, the end of this journey. So, you know, I, I suffered greatly through pilot training, yeah. uh, probably the most stressful experience of my life up to that point. Um, and I get to the hog and I realized that like, oh, you don't know anything. Like you're barely good enough to uh, just know enough to start learning. So mm -hmm. uh, you're basically, you know, everyone at that point expects, you know, how to fly the airplane, you know, how, you know, you're supposed to fly it well, you get a few sorties at the beginning, and then it's on to like the tactical stuff. So it's just like trying to drink from the fire hose, as they say, and yeah. it just, you think you're done, and you've made it. And then you realize you haven't even began to, you know, to start yet. And you continue on and, and, um, again to start out at the bottom and start uh start working your way up to be a qualified wingman was this is this is this academic you feel like you were expected to know that you just you didn't uh, over... what do you mean by that like is that the is that the challenge that you, you ran into is it like it's a very you said you were exhausted kind of or, or just everything you went through is is that from the academic standpoint because it sounds like the uh, flying aspect you you really enjoyed and had fun with but everyone assumes like, Oh, it's just flying. You go learn how to fly. Like, no, there's a lot of, you know, books and stuff that goes into that as well. So it's just, was it to the academic stuff that maybe you just weren't prepared it, for? Or? I would say it's just all of it. Like, because, um, you know, you can wash out of pilot training. You can wash out of a 10 training in yeah. three bad flights. So you'll be trucking along just fine. You fail a ride. Next thing you know, you're on a, like a, uh, a reflight on that sortie you fail that now you're doing a progress check with a squadron commander and if you fail that you're gone so um wow. what and what i was alluding to at the end of pilot training is you finish pilot training and you know how to fly you know you've got 250 hours and right. you've been flying but everything you've learned up to that point is you realize it's just it's almost um it's just barely scratching the surface of what you need to know to be able to employ a weapon system. Yeah. So everyone assumes you can fly in formation, you can 
fly instruments. You can fly, uh, you can fly the jet really well or else you wouldn't be there. You know, right. you wouldn't have made it to the top of your class to, to get the aircraft you wanted in the first place. Right. So everyone there can fly, but, um, you know, it's just now you're learning to employ a weapon system. So instead of just firing up the jet, turn on the GPS, it times in and off you go. Now it's turn on the jet, turn on the GPS, turning on all the different weapon systems, going through all the checks, all the, you know, offensive and, you know, all the defensive countermeasures. There's just, it's just so much more complex. And then um, now every sortie, you know, you've got wingmen and you're flying in two ships, four ships. Uh, soon you're flying coordinated attacks, dissimilar flights with, um, you know, other weapon systems. So it's just, it's a lot, man. They're like, and I think kind of what, what's a little bit discouraging at that point is um, you've got your pilot wings, you feel like you made it, and you realize that you're at the beginning of a very long journey of actually being competent at this new career field. What are um, what are the weapons that are on the A-10 that you learn? Oh, um, it, it carries pretty much weapon uh, in the inventory. So... Um, you know, the, the main weapon system is the gun 30 millimeter, mm -hmm. uh, the Gawade Avenger carries almost 1200 rounds, you know, wow. fires at 70 rounds a second. Jeez. So, I mean, that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's a lot. Such an awesome oh, weapon system. Yeah. So, you know, that's kind of your, that's the bread and butter, go to, but yeah. that's why you want to fly the A-10. You want to shoot the big ass Gatling gun, but, but then we've got 11 hard points, you know, so you're carrying, you know, just conventional bombs, GPS guided bombs, laser guided bombs, uh, Maverick missiles, rockets, um, illumination flares. Like just if you can, you know, uh, cluster bombs, now they're dropping small diameter bombs. Like pretty much if you can um, think of a conventional weapon, it's very likely that the A-10 can employ it. So I just did some quick like math real quick though. 70 rounds a second. I, I imagine that's gone pretty quickly. So how did, how, does that ever, do you ever run, did you ever run into any moments like, where you're like, oh shit, I'm, I have nothing left. Oh yeah. It's, it's called going <laughs> Winchester. You like shoot the gun out, you yeah. know, but I mean, it's got you like in training sometimes uh, like there's a rare circumstance when they'd say, okay, just shoot out the guns, like bring them back yeah. empty. Yeah, uh, a lot of times in training, it's just like, "Hey, uh, you're allocated 300 rounds for this sortie," okay. and then so you kind of orchestrate yeah. it how you need to to get the effective yeah. training. Um, but yeah, it, you know, you get a, a a good combat burst is literally like two to three seconds. Like, yeah, like getting so the same rounds on target. Yeah. Do those things ever jam? They do. It's very yeah. rare, but yeah. I've seen them jam before. Oh wow! Okay, man. All right. Uh, okay. So what year was this when you finished, when you were hundred percent done, trained, ready to go deploy and go use your brand new A-10? If there yeah, were so, new one. <laughs> I don't think yeah. there are any brand new ones. Yeah, no, uh, 2006. So kind of into 2005, early 2006. Okay. Surge time. stationed up in, in Fairbanks, Alaska. Yeah. So uh, it's kind of, kind of fun to think about. I could fit everything I owned at this point in my, um, like single cab F-150. <laughs> so, like, you know, travel. Yeah. You weren't... <laughs> yeah. Not a lot of time. To 
Yeah, exactly. So um, drive up to Fairbanks, Alaska from Tucson, Arizona in February of 06. And uh, I get there and no one's there because they're all in Afghanistan. Gone. Yeah. Wow. And um, so I'm trying to figure out if, if I can go. And so I talked to the talk to the commander. And uh, first he's, he's he says no. He's like, no, just sit tight. We'll be back. And um, and you'll just get spun up when we get back. And then um, at this point, you know, in 2006, I'm thinking, man, this might be my last chance, which is kind of funny to think about now. But you're going, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> if, we, if we wrap this thing up, I might I might never get a chance to yep. uh, depart, yeah. to contribute. So uh, so I really wanted to go. And uh, I remember um, kind of making a pitch to my commander that if he lets me go, I will uh, bring a giant cooler full of like salmon and halibut and Alaska king crab. <laughs> and uh, I was like, you That's know, awesome. and I tell him how I'm a new lieutenant and they're halfway through the deployment. It could improve morale and just to have some some just new young energy. Your ass off. I love it. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, so he thinks about it and he's like, all right, dude, like yeah. get your ass out in. here. Yeah, you fit in. We'll cut you, we'll cut you some orders. So yeah. so they're like midway through the deployment, and I just go start, you know, scooping up all the halibut and salmon I can find, like deep freeze it. And uh just everywhere I would land on my way over there. Like I'm, you know, in a hotel in Baltimore. Hey, do you guys have a walk-in freezer? So I refreeze <laughs> it in Baltimore. Awesome. Then I like go from there to to germany same thing freeze oh, this man. for me that's hilarious so i'm like i'm refreezing it every yeah, night every step yeah. along the way yeah and then I, I finally make it out to to bagram just like ah. you know uh after it's got kind of, my orders were funny because i didn't move with the squadron so they're just yeah. like find your way to Bagram. yeah so you're on disney so, route disney they're just trying to figure out where the hell to go you're like hitchhiking taking, yeah. taking the longest route possible <laughs> So, okay. Um, well, you went to Alaska. How long were you in Alaska for? Um, I was in Alaska for like a couple of years. Like, okay. I want to say two years. No, I meant before you got out to. Oh, just a, just a couple, like a very short time. Just okay. like a few weeks. I don't even, I didn't even think I had a, an apartment at the time. I just. I was just wondering. Did a quick turn out there. Was it winter, summer? Um, it was going into spring at this time. So yeah, I had to been there. Um, I was probably there like, you know, a few weeks. Okay. Yeah. So I just was curious how that shift for you going over to Bagram was heavy mountains. I'm not sure what time of year you got over there, whether the snow was still around or was coming or not, but yeah, that's definitely some, some crazy terrain. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think I got over there. I want to say April of that okay. year by the time That's i finally well, yeah so it it had been a little bit and um just to kind of you know how it is get your orders yeah. cut, get all your nine mil training and all yeah. your equipment issued and things like that and then we go from cold alaska to yeah um, to bagram well plus uh, it's i mean totally foreign at that point too you've never flown in afghanistan so what was what like what was the first mission or whatever it is you had to do what was what was that like just being oh my in a total gosh. foreign environment let alone the new guy as well who's with all these dudes who are in the middle of a deployment like who's this new guy oh, man I, I like it's it's amazing they didn't send me home on my my first day there <laughs> like i so 
So I you had finally, it, so that makes sense. Yeah, well, so that went well. So I walk into the squadron. <laughs> you know, I'd been sleeping in, in different airfields and just kind of, yeah. like, oh, the, the flight got slipped seven hours, you know, that kind of deal. Yeah. And I walk in and I just, I hadn't got a good night's sleep in like a week. I'm like pale, bloodshot eyes. I'm like, oh, I made it. Here's your... These are halibut and salmon. They're like, hey, hey, new guy. Hey, new guy. We'll take that. <laughs> yeah, but and then, um, the, uh, and then they're like, hey, we got a task for you. And uh, maintenance just finished up working this, um, this, this broke engine. And we need you to go do a maintenance engine run. And I'm like, well, I go, I've, I've never done that in an A10, but like I was a former maintainer. How hard could it be? Right. Uh, so, I'm like, I'm half delirious from sleep deprivation at this point. Yeah. I'm like, I probably had no, um, I should have just said, no, I can't do it, but uh, I'm not going to do that on my first Yeah, day. new guy. Yeah, you, no choice. Yeah, so I walk out to the jet. The crew chief looked like he was like 12 years old. He also <laughs> had never done this particular maintenance check. Yeah. And so um, my first day in theater and me and this inexperienced crew chief are going through the procedures for this particular uh, particular check. So anyway, long story short is I didn't realize that he had grabbed the wrong checklist. And so he's running me through um, a maintenance check that is not intended to be accomplished while you are just sitting there and parking. <laughs> so we get to this point and he reads out the checklist and he's like, hey, dude, um, what I need you to do next is push the throttle full forward. And when it gets to this, this, you know, certain engine temperature, you're going to test, test the override and you're going to turn that off and you're going to turn it on again. And you're going to see it like engage and disengage. So we're going to, we're going to test this. And I'm thinking about, it, I'm like, dude, that's a lot of thrust just for being parked here without the aircraft being chained. I go, are you yeah. sure? He's like, yeah, dude, it says it right here. And I'm like, <laughs> it's on the checklist. <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm like, I'm like, okay. And we're going to do one throttle at a time, right? And I'm like, okay, well, maybe that's not too much thrust if I, I'm just real fast with it, you know? So I like stand on the brakes, push the throttle up. And like the second the throttle spins up, the jet jumps the chocks and slides oh, forward. It starts, it, it just starts <laughs> sliding like, the crew chief dives out of the way. I rip the throttles to idle and do like an abort uh, procedure. Like I throttles yeah. to idle, deploy the speed brake and just mash on the brakes. And now I'm like 15 feet out into a taxiway on, and I had been in theater for like two hours. <laughs> <laughs> so fucking uh, almost killed the crew chief who <laughs> dove out of the way and saved his own life. So I'm like, all right, dude, we're done here. I have to call into ground control and I don't even have a call sign because I wasn't intending yeah, that was, to Yeah, that was my next question is when, when does the call sign come? Well, yeah, you, so you always get a call sign for doing something very stupid. Mm -hmm. This is how I got, got yeah, my It's like nicknames. You sign. don't get to choose them. They get given to you. Yeah, you know, in the movies, you get to be like Iceman or Maverick. Yeah, Maverick. <laughs> in, in real world, you get something that makes fun of you. So anyway, I, I request taxi. Taxi back park. I'm like, all right, pal, we're done here because we, <laughs> you can't keep going when uh, you almost had a mishap. Uh, you know, this is not looking good. So I walk in and I'm like, 
where's the commander? (laughs) (laughs) I I have to confess something. So I go meet the commander. I'm like, hey, sir, I'm the new guy. And uh, oh, by the way, I almost like killed a crew chief and could have destroyed an A-10 when I'd been in theater for like two hours. So um, we got there. He looks at the airplane and uh, anyhow, it, it ended up being okay, but he's like, okay, dude, you're going to fly with me for the rest of this deployment. Oh, damn. <laughs> you're going to be on my wing. I think they're nice. a little bit, a uh, little bit, uh, you know, worried what they had on their hands there. That's actually pretty cool though. Like the dude took you under and said, Hey, he's, he's going to take you out with him every time. That's kind of cool. I think like that's, dude, that's he, a pretty cool. That's a leadership awesome move. Guy. Yeah. That's a pretty cool leadership move. Yeah. We're still friends to this day. Like yeah. that guy, uh, his name is Q-Tip. He, He's like just an awesome dude. Wait, so wait, well, you didn't you didn't give us your name. Okay, so um that particular check in the checklist is they called it a chop check. Okay. And so since I porked up a chop check for the next 22 years, I was known as pork chop. Pork (laughs) chop for the next 22 years. There it is. Pork (laughs) chop. Nice. That's that's good. That's actually not bad. You yeah, can do a lot so, with pork chop. That's you can do a lot with that. You can get creative with that. That's yeah, good. you know, for for a couple of years, your you know your buddies call you PC, and then PC. a couple of years they call you just chop. So you know, it's, uh, it's evolved over the years. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's good. Uh, so so what was so how okay now you're there. I don't know how long you were there your first time, but what what uh what was like your first real mission? Yeah. So um. You know, flying the A-10, not every mission is particularly eventful. So yeah. that's what that's what you're hoping for. You know, you go out and say, you know, your mission today is to provide armed overwatch for a convoy moving mm-hmm. from point A to point B. So maybe you go, you know, quickly brief it up with a convoy commander when you check in or preferably yeah. on the ground, whatever it may be. You show up, you provide them overwatch, they get to where they're going. You know, you're out of time, you go home and that's that's what you're hoping for um but uh i also remember um like it was yesterday the first time you're just you know out there doing your mission you get the call on the radio and it's that it sounds like that 18 year old voice that that guy with a rifle and a radio and you hear the the gunfire and you hear the kind of terror in his voice um you know and the first time I, I responded to troops in contact, I just remember like my whole world sunk down to like tunnel vision. And then I feel this like physiological response, like increased heart rate, yeah. kind of pal- heart palpitations, a little bit of sweat on your brow. Go time. And you're, yeah. And you're going like, oh shit, they're, they're like dependent on us now. Yeah. And then I remember having that moment of like, just a little bit of fear going like, what do I do? Cause it all comes at you at once. Yeah. yeah. And it's never, you know, in a cast fight, um, <laughs> nothing's ever easy to figure out because everyone has, you know, feet, tracks, wheels, whatever it may be. And they're all trying to kill each other and it's moving, mm. um, dynamic environment, everything's moving at the same time. So, you know, your job is to sort it all out. Um, but I just, you know, and I'm a wingman this time, and my job is to support my flight lead, who is solving the problem at this time. Yeah. So I just remember having that kind of that physiological response, the tunnel vision, and then kind of the I kind of snapped out of it, and that was probably literally a matter of seconds. 
Yeah. I remember thinking like, oh, I know like exactly what to do because we've trained to this scenario a million times. Yeah. So, okay. Like this seems like chaos. Well, well, what do we need to do? Well, we need to find out where he's at. Okay. Let's get his coordinates. We got his call sign. Let's start getting pointed in that direction. Okay. Let's calculate our fuels. So we understand how much gas we're going to have when we get there and so on, you know, and you start prioritizing all the tasks you need and then executing them and working down that list. So you can go affect the fight in a positive way, you know, be a help and not yeah. make things worse. So, right. yeah. So I, I just remember being out there and supporting my flight leads and, um, just being a young guy without a care in the world, you know, flying A-10s in combat and thinking it was like the most badass thing ever. Uh, you, you mentioned something you, you trained on that scenario. I'm just curious how A-10 training evolved, I would say, because, you know, when I went to basic training in 2002, we were still doing, you know, squad tactics from Vietnam era and, you know, very little urban combat and scenarios that had changed by the time I was a drill sergeant in 2009, where those dudes were learning way more advanced stuff than I ever did and were highly or way more trained. So did your training reflect what you guys were doing in Afghanistan at the time, or was it a lot of different era tactics from, you said, mentioned the Gulf war that your one of your, uh, you know, trainers was. So how did your training carry over pretty, pretty, uh, accurately, I would say. Yeah. I mean, by, by the time I was going through, you know, we had been there, um, you know, it was for like four years, five years, we had a, you know, couple years experience in Iraq. Okay. So that quickly made its way to the schoolhouse and um, you start preparing for the scenario that you're actually going to see real world. So right. there's, there's nothing that can simulate like, you know, people actually dying, people yeah. getting hurt, getting Kazavak. Um, but you can rehearse it so many times that you know what your responsibilities are. Right. Uh, in under almost any scenario and you can understand when uh maybe the best thing you can do is just a show of force at 100 feet and spit out a bunch of flares and try to get the attention away from uh from your guys and get it onto you and because you don't have everything perfectly figured out at that time so you know you you've rehearsed it enough to where um where you you, you knew what you needed to do yeah what you needed to do uh, to be effective, I'd say. What's the most difficult part for you in that situation? Since you are in an aircraft, you're obviously not there on the ground. Uh, I don't know anything about like what your, your field of vision's like, what it is you're actually looking for on the ground. What are you seeing? Like, so what was always a, a biggest challenge for you? Cause you mentioned everybody's moving, there's tracks, people are trying to hurt each other. So there's a lot of moving pieces. What's that like? Cause you're moving at the same time as well. It's not like you get to stop and get out and hey oh wait hold on yeah you know it's there's no like one specific thing it's just you can't put ordinance down if you don't understand the ground picture and the ground picture is always changing right. so i would say it's i mean you're trying to identify the target which is the most important thing besides you know you've got accurate target id you've yeah. got friendly situational awareness you understand, you know, if you, if you fail in any one component, like things are going to go real bad. So yeah. you have to understand where the targets are. 
You have to understand what the threats are to you and the, you know and the friendlies. You have to know where all the friendlies are. You have to understand all the aircraft in the stack, any artillery that may be coming through your stack. Shit, yeah. Like if there's if there's any component of of this picture that's not in place, um, you're you know you might have you might be trying to help these guys, and then you have an air to air with like an MQ one and you know, you yourself die or you destroy two airplanes, you know? So yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's just orchestrating, um, you know, prioritize, execute all the required tasks, understanding where everybody is, what they're doing. There's things you can do to, to have that confirm, you know, that confirmation between you and the ground guys. Mm -hmm. So it's just having a good understanding of your capabilities and going through the process, not getting rushed, no matter what's happening. So you can go, you know, affect the battlefield and, and help these guys and not make it worse. Yeah. So I'd say the hard part is just, um, you know, being able to orchestrate all that's required while flying the airplane, monitoring your wingman, you know, making sure that, um, again, you're, you're helping and not hurting this situation. Is communication difficult in these or is it fairly fluid for you? I mean, communication is always the biggest problem in CAS. Yeah. I mean, close air support is a giant calm exercise. So, you know, we have technology that, that helps facilitate um, this, this confirmation that you need to, to go through. But um, you can't shortcut it because technology can fail. So, right you need these multiple layers of confirmation. So it, yeah, it's difficult. It's a new person. Uh, a lot of the times you're not talking to the same ground right. controller. Yeah. He's got a ground picture. So what he's seeing may not look at all like what, what you're seeing from the air. Yeah. Right. So as you get, you know, you go through training, you have a basic knowledge of what you're supposed to do. Um, you know, fast forward a decade, you know, I'm back there and say like 2014 mm -hmm. and you you've you've done it so much that you are able to be that kind of calm reassuring voice on the radio you know what to say to get the information you need you know what you need to do to get that 100 percent guaranteed confirmation so when you do put down ordinance uh you know it's going to go in the right place what was the longest you were out on like a single uh, support or cast or whatever you had to do i'd have to go look i remember some i want to say like seven hours seven in the like, air yeah oh damn so, i didn't realize i could fly that long that's a that's fucking nuts yeah i mean you go you know go to the tanker so you go okay flight refuel that's even that anytime i like i never saw it physically like being a part of it but anytime you see videos like that shit blows my mind like that we're able to do that like that's fucking nuts to me yeah, not everybody has that capability. And yeah. I mean, it just ex extends your your ability to reach out and touch someone indefinitely. <laughs> yeah. You know, you just... But I mean, seven hours, man. No bathroom breaks? What's <laughs> like, Yeah, well, that's I didn't thing. say that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's Stereo another thing, man. Because I mean, I can... pack. Yeah. I, okay. So you, you get issued one of those, huh? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, you like you do. I get dehydrated up there. You're, you know, you're up in, uh, uh, up at altitude. Yeah. High up in the atmosphere. You're in this bubble canopy soaking up all that UV. So you have to, 
you have to stay hydrated to perform at, at a high level. So and, you're drinking uh, so, yeah. up there as well. Yeah. So yeah. you're, you're keeping the, the fluids coming in and, uh, and yeah, you gotta carry a bunch of piddle packs on these long missions. There's just these, these little bags that have a powder in it that turn your piss into like jello. So it doesn't spill everywhere. Nice. <laughs> so, yeah. Cool you that, just, when man. you, yeah, when you have a that. second, you just take a moment and fill that up and take those out hunting with you now, probably. I imagine. That's <laughs> yeah. That's cool. That's again, that's just stuff that I don't think people think about. So seven hours though. I mean, anybody doing anything for seven hours, that's fatiguing, se severely fatiguing. I would imagine. And most people aren't flying an aircraft. Um, you ever have any moments where you're like, oh shit, I'm fucking tired. Like, like this is, this is getting bad. Not really in the jet because yeah. if you get extended, there's a reason why. Okay. And so, um, so in the airplane, I was happy to extend as long as they needed me. Um, if you're like, you know, crossing the pond, say you're, you're in transit, you're just, you're with your buddies. And uh, I never being in the jet um never mm. bothered me but mm. uh i did have a lot of issues throughout my career uh just with like back and neck issues um you know sitting in the jet yeah. your your shoulders are rolled forward your neck's kind of hunched down to have a really good view through yeah. the heads up display uh you yeah. have you're always wearing a helmet uh by the end you had it's something called the the hemix which is this um it's like a monocle so you can yeah like digital representations on that's the ground no oh, that's crazy yeah but in that like that thing weighs a couple pounds and then at night you're flying with night vision goggles so you've got all this weight on your head and then all it's like time. shooting forward yeah. on your helmet and then you're wearing it for hours and you're looking through the hood you're pulling g's when you're when you're in a yeah. turn you're looking over your shoulder behind you and so kind of the, the worst part of it for me was um was never while flying it would be like the next day yeah. um you get up and you're like oh i i can't lace my boot today because my finger's numb and i can't you know i i, I can't i just can't get there so um i better call the flight doc you know so um after you know years of wrestling and then yeah years of flying yeah. it's great on the years spine. In, i i started started feeling the you know was on the pain train uh for that but it still kind of managed was able to manage it and have a full career was is, is is flying at night as difficult as it sounds like to me that just because you mentioned night vision goggles and you know it's that looks cool but when you're you know most people are just walking around with them on like there's a very big difference between like flying and... yeah yeah you know it's it can be difficult um when you're when you're learning but like anything the more you do it the more yeah. comfortable you get with it and then it becomes um just like anything else, it becomes second nature. So I loved flying at night. I, oh, like wow. my last deployment, I volunteered to stay on nights. Usually, you, you know, you rotate through the shifts. Yeah. And uh, cause you know, all the, the exciting stuff happened at night. That's when all the <laughs> like, task force missions happened. None of the That's brass. True. Was, that makes points. It's a good point. Yeah. None of the brass was like on base. They're all, they're all asleep. So you could just come in, <laughs> fly your mission, you know, play xbox but, watch a movie with, yeah oh, but that's got to make did that make the the situations harder for you though on the ground like when you're doing your actual um like your cast missions 
Um, you know, it's just, I wouldn't say harder. It's just different, but you have, you have different tools. So now you yeah. have like IR illumination, you know, That's you right. have, yeah. you have, you have different, um, just a different kind of techniques and different tools yeah. to kind of solve the problem when it's dark out. And there's a lot of advantages to it as well. So, yeah, I would imagine, but that's just, I, I, the, what just as, as me, like being a layman, right. Who doesn't fly, who's never flown and all that. The first thing I always think about, especially in Afghanistan is, is, you know, if you're flying at night, like, okay, terrain, mountains, those things like that stuff, you know, Yeah, I remember being like, uh, were you in Afghanistan? Yeah. I think we overlapped because so like, I was there 13 and 14. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, so I yeah, I remember being at night. What's what, like remember like fall bright, like up kind of yeah, north of like Nixon's yep. nose, we yep. called it on the map. Like mm -hmm. they're there are oh, those poor bastards were like always engaged up there. Yeah. Um yeah, they're so yeah, far remember, away from support. So yeah, just you know, we're out there, you know, protecting the Afghan border. Um Yep. kind of ironic at this point but uh yeah i remember yeah, it's being better out there. About it, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh it's uh yeah it's no good but yeah i remember being up there at night getting pushed down um from the weather so we're trying to try to support these guys we're getting lower and lower and lower because it's giant cloud decks coming in and next thing you know being my my wingman are like feeling low altitude at night in this little little valley and there's yeah. no way out of it until we just basically go instrument and climb up out of it but um but yeah i mean night can definitely be dangerous because you could just fly into terrain uh unwittingly if you're not doing what you're supposed to do so yeah different breed man different fucking breed that's that's uh, that's great man so you and you ended up doing this 22 years yep from I had 22 years active duty by the time I retired. Um. So what's that path like for you? For you? So you you know you're lieutenant. You go over there. You're just you're the pilot doing all that cool stuff. And then progression. I imagine what you got out as a lieutenant colonel. Yep. Okay. Any more fun still being had at that point, or is it all just? Uh, you know the fun gets less and less <laughs> the, the higher up you get. Yeah. I was always kind of a you know, E4 mafia. Yeah. Slash, yeah. I can, uh, yeah, I can tell Lieutenant at heart. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I never took myself too seriously. Um, yeah. you know, like when I was a Lieutenant Colonel and squadron commander, um, I'm like, my view was take care of the guys. They'll get the mission done. And I just need to make sure they get promoted. They get the awards they need. Yeah. Kind of set the example. And, um, uh, yeah, but I mean, you're spending so much time in the office, you know, writing up awards packages, yeah. performance reports, all that stuff that, uh, yeah, it took a lot of the fun out of it. I, I mean, so you obviously, you know, you did the, 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 the 20 before you retired. So I would assume like you had never had the intention of just seeing how far you can go up. You wanted to kind of do your 20 and get out. Is that, was that always the plan? Um, you know, I, I would I'd say I didn't really have a plan. Like yeah. kind of kind of mid-career. I really thought about getting out. I went and um talked to my buddy in the guard out in Boise, Idaho. Okay. And um I almost got out at that point. And then uh they offered me an assignment I wanted. You know, so okay. Yeah. What if um 
what if we let you go to Tucson? And I was like, well, that sounds cool. So uh, I did that and um, um, just ended up, I was like, I'm going to stay in as long as I'm still having fun. And so uh, by the end, I would say uh, it just kind of, it stopped being fun and I was ready to, to go on yeah. to the next phase. Yeah. You know, the moves start to really take a toll on your family. At, so, yeah. you know, Fast yeah, we forward, skipped over all that. So yeah, exactly. So now you, you're at a different stage of your life. So, um, all right. So that that this is like perfect transition time for me. So now, what is it? How did how did you and your wife get to this point? What where did this idea come from? Is this was this your idea? Her idea? Both? Yeah. Seven yeah, barrel so... ranch. <laughs> Yeah, so um, should make a great bourbon name. I still contend someone needs to make seven know, bourbon. It probably it would. Huh? I'd pretty, <laughs> do pretty well. Yeah, let's talk. Uh, we'll get there. <laughs> but uh, you know, so I'm I'm approaching the end of my career now. So you know, fast forward 22 years, and yeah, um, <clears throat> you look at uh, you know COVID's unfolding now, and um, I'm just that's kind of when I have you showed this, up on Twitter, right? Like around that time. A little bit after that, I think yeah. I when I made my count in like I think the end of 2020, 2021 time frame. Okay, yeah. I didn't really start posting much for a while, but yeah, yeah you know, we're just we're just sitting there and um and I'm looking at you know what does my future hold here? Like, am I gonna go down the normal path which is go to the airlines or or go to corporate yeah. america yeah go to like some you know defense contractor or uh you know a think tank and um just, just trying to um trying to figure out where you know what kind of life do i want to live from here on out because up to that point it just basically been a wild ride and mm -hmm. i was did a lot of it just based on momentum so it's like, you know how it is. One assignment yeah. leads to the next. Yeah. Um, and then I'm at the point where I'm sitting in squadron command and um, the um, application to go to SDE comes out. So it's like senior developmental education. So it's where you okay. go from yeah. like lieutenant colonel to, yeah. to full colonel. Like army war college for us, kind of. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So my air war college whatever the the in the zone yeah look for that yeah is out and my my commander sends it to me and he's like hey like fill out your preferences yada yada and i'm like looking at that and that school is like 10 months and then it has a three-year service commitment after it yeah and um i just so it's like 10 months here then i'll probably go to staff this is like, like assuming i pin on 06 yeah and then i'll wait for an 06 command which could be um you know a great assignment or it could be like one year non-flying in centcom to like pushing paper and i'm just realizing like man my i think my family's had enough i think yeah. i've had enough and so that was kind of my decision point and i just told him that i wasn't gonna apply i'm like i'm not a volunteer and so at that point you basically just jump off the the upward trajectory and i just finished out my um my career out at, at tucson at the schoolhouse and um yeah i just finished up there so so while we're going through that process we're looking at like i'm like okay well i've been doing this 
pretty much my adult life, the normal path is to, um, to, you know, go to the airlines, go to the corporate world. And, and to me, that just feels like soul crushing. Now, uh, airlines are a great job. If I had started down that path when I was in my twenties, you know, yeah. uh, it, it would be awesome, but I didn't want to be the new co-pilot at, you know, 44 or whatever. Yeah. And, have, you know, be gone for Christmas and birthdays and do that for five to seven years until I, I uh, fleet up to, to, um, aircraft commander and then start all over again. Yeah. So I just, it that just didn't appeal, appeal to me at, at my current age. And then kind of corporate America was just, you know, what BS that is, yeah. you know, I'm just like, it just doesn't appeal to me. And, um, you know, so I started looking at, uh, well, what, what kind of lifestyle do I want to live? And then um, let's reverse engineer that and, and how can we get there? So, you know, I grew up, I worked dairy farms, uh, worked outside, loved uh, tree work, just kind of anything outside. And, um, and so just started looking at properties and things like that. And we just were super lucky that we found this place, which is just a couple miles from where I graduated high school and where my wife was born and raised, you know, my parents are here and everything. And, um, so just found this place when, um, uh, COVID had kind of frozen a lot of the real estate transactions. So I think people were worried that it was going to be like total collapse. So we got this place for a great deal and started building it up as I'm, you know, burn and leave and jumping back and forth on every weekend and holiday and things like that until I could kind of retire and get out here full time. And, um, cause your wife, was she a professor or? Yeah. She's so, got that chemistry um, thing. I know I've shared that with my daughter over the years. So yeah. Appreciate your wife yeah, as well. <laughs> absolutely, man. Yeah, yeah. My wife. So yeah, she, um, she went to Vanderbilt, you know, had a, oh, okay. Yeah. So uh, she's the smart one. Got it. <laughs> exactly she you know she has a chemistry degree hey let me let me put the dogs out real yeah, quick yeah no go ahead man. <laughs> so yeah you know my wife had worked as a chemist uh, for a good while, she she was like tenure professor, mm-hmm. uh, pretty pretty smart cookie, and so you know like we're both just not big spenders, if you will, you know yeah. if you want to go down the kind of the the finance discussion, but you know I'd been in the Air Force for twenty two years, she had worked for a good while, and we just my my total uh, focus and everything was on kind of career and family, and so. Um, I had just kind of saved and invested my whole career and, and she had done the same, you know, before we got married and then continued on after we were married. And uh, so, you know, I'm sitting here at like 44 we're going, Hey, we have no debt. We bought this place uh, free and clear. So we're going, um, well, I don't have to do any of that stuff if I don't want to. So let's just move out there, start, you know, running cattle and, uh, doing the work and, and just see how it goes. How did you get into the cattle though? Like that, that's, <laughs> that, I mean, I think that's, it. that's a really cool thing. I know a lot of people 
you know, I wouldn't say fantasize about that idea, but a lot of people are like, yeah, I could do that. But there's a big difference between talking about doing that and then realizing, oh shit, now I'm actually responsible for you know, like actual yeah. cows and, and all that that goes along with that. What was that like for you? Dude, it's awesome. It's just, it's like, everything's a learning process, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I like, I did a lot of stuff when I was a kid, but yeah, uh, kind of kind of brain dumped a lot of that throughout <laughs> my my career. And yeah, totally so, different focus. Yeah, it's just it's kind of a new passion, you know. It's um, it's it's really cool to be able to produce like ultra healthy food for your family, yeah. for your community. I mean, um, you know, the you can go out and see the cattle. They're grazing. They eat what they're supposed to eat, which is yeah, grass. You grass. know, <laughs> they're not like pumped full of hormones and. Yeah soy and, and glyphosate or whatever else and although so they can, do they, just... they're pretty tasty with corn i'm just saying but yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know so it's like um it's just cool it's a really neat way to raise your kids um they learn yeah a lot of responsibility you know so yeah, you, you really hurt people's feelings by having your kids do stuff like that it's kind of funny the reaction you get online oh yeah just massive triggering when yeah you don't want to participate <laughs> yeah how how's your does i assume you, your wife knows that backlash does, how does she deal with that oh you know it's funny she's like like my wife has like facebook and okay she like har hardly checks it yeah she's just like Smart. she's just like so involved with what she's doing you know she does like all the gardening yeah um you know, all the food prep, like she, she's busy. She does the bulk of the homeschooling. Yep. And so she just, you know, she just thinks it's funny and she thinks it's good to get the message out that, Hey, there's, there's like an alternative way to do things. You don't necessarily have to, um, like if you don't have great schools and, or you're not happy with, you know, your public schools, there's, there's an alternative way to do these things. Yeah. And, and that's what I think is kind of that. That's why I bring it up because you know you just mentioned your wife went to Vanderbilt, right? Like, it's not that education was clearly not important, right? Because I think a lot of people think, oh, you just don't take the education seriously. It's like, oh, well, actually, my wife went to Vanderbilt, chemistry major, like you said, uh, probably the exact opposite of most of these people who are getting offended by the fact of the way you choose to raise your kids and educate them. I just feel like that's kind of the funny nature of the backlash it's like they think they're missing out on something because that's not what they experienced whereas i would argue they're getting a much better and well-rounded experience because we didn't most people didn't get that path right like i i, I didn't get that path people that are outraged that they don't get that path so they have no idea the benefit that your children are getting by getting to experience what you just brought up the connection to nature, the connection to their food, their connection to learning how that goes and how that gets processed and how all that hard work goes into the community and, and the feeding aspect of it. That's if you reduce education to its core, wouldn't you assume more people would want that as opposed to what we're fed in public education right now? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I know people who have great schools and, yeah. um, and there's like, there's great homeschool groups and yep. like homeschool looks so different uh, than it did probably like 20 years ago or like, you know, when yeah. we were kids 100%. Yeah, um, because, you know, we have like a cohort of 
I don't even know how many kids now say like that's cool. 30 to 40 kids. That's cool. They meet once a week, you know, then they do something else a lot of times uh, a little bit later in the week. Yeah. You know, kids are involved in theater and they can do sports and, um, and you just have so much more time to kind of connect with them and, um, and to kind of teach them, your, you know, your values and they're, right. so they're getting what you believe the parents, not what some like angry millennial believes. So has that been hard though, from, from a, like a, a state government standpoint, have you been pushed back for that at all? Or is Oregon um, pretty easy to, to, to do it, this type of thing? It's not too bad. There are like standardized testing requirements. Yeah. You have to like declare that you're homeschooling and then you have to submit your, your test scores. And like, like my, oldest daughter had her first test in first grade and like they rated her like reading comprehension at 10.5 grade level and she's in first grade so it's like (laughs) like okay i think they're getting a pretty darn good education yeah like they feel like they're 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 getting it that's yeah you you just take a couple hours it's like this core curriculum you're learning like the classics yeah you're uh learning math you're learning science and uh, the rest of the time, they're doing chores, they're playing, they're doing extracurricular activities, and do, um, it works out. Do you think that the the benefit to that is um, the one-on-one time when it comes to that stuff, where they're not in a big class and subject to how how much attention the teacher can pay to them? Oh, for sure, man. I mean, it, you know, it's it's individualized. Right. It's basically one-on-one. <laughs> so yeah. If if you have a high achieving student um, in this day and age, they're basically you're going to be bored and held back. And right. They're going to teach yeah. to the lowest common denominator. Yes. That's not every school, but if you're in a public school and there's 30 kids or whatever the the number is these days, it's just a it's just a resource limitation. Mm-hmm. Well, so, that's why I bring that up because you know being out here in Virginia now and I've got to go to, you know, Jefferson's home in Monticello. I've gone to Mount Vernon to see Washington where they, and you see all these things, these men did like all the, di- like Jefferson built Mont. He taught himself architecture and built his house. Like, like these are, th- they didn't do one thing. You know, they, there wasn't a major. It's like they did whatever they felt like they needed to do or wanted to do from an education standpoint. They took the time to educate themselves largely. Um, and a lot of men did that back in that time, you know, two, 300 years ago, you just learn stuff, whether it was law or medicine or, or, or the architecture that we bring up, um, farming and all the engineering, these things that people had to do or just needed to do in order to survive and kind of thrive in that environment. Um, people don't do that anymore. There's no, everyone goes and chooses a fucking major or a singular path that they follow and focus on. And a lot of times it's probably not even the best one for them they're doing something that they feel like it's going to be secure or maybe they can make a decent living at, but it's not a passion or it's not something that they truly are called to do. It's just what they're funneled into doing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's probably a a big part of why I've been enjoying being back here too. Yeah. It's because, you know, whether you're a pilot, an officer or, or whatever you're doing these days, it's a very, um, you know, in this modern economy, everything's very specialized and yep. highly technical. So you kind of have your your area of expertise and then you subcontract everything else. Everything that's, else. 
the yeah. modern way. So, mm. uh, you know, out here, if I did that, I would go broke and have to right. go get a job. So Ugh. you're forced to learn how to do things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, like whether it's like, you know, building fences, repair, um, tree work, it's like, you know, there are things that I have to hire out, but if I can do it by myself, I'm, right. I'm going to try to try to yeah. figure it out, learn it and and do it. Um, why the llamas? <laughs> They're big llamas. out West. I used to see them a lot in California, Northern California, huge llama farms or alpaca farms. So why the llamas? So the llamas were, uh, granted, uh, immunity because they were grandfathered into the property. Okay. So, <laughs> so they were there. <laughs> yeah. The woman who sold me this place, um, she gave me a great deal and she was something that was very important to her is that, uh, whoever bought the property would take care of the llamas. So okay. I made a promise to do that and I intend to follow through on it. Do people eat llamas? Can you eat no. them? Can't eat them? <laughs> I don't think so. Because <laughs> I wondered Llama that. Tacos. Yeah, well, that'd be that'd be interesting. No, because like I said, like in you know where I started out in Northern California, we'd always go up to uh, to Wheatland to the Air Force Base there in Wheatland. What was what Beale Beale Air Force Base there in Wheatland? Uh, and if you go a certain back way, you will go past several um, like alpaca and llama farms. And I used to like, what do they do with these things? Like I know there's. So like, from what I understand, they um, they make really good livestock guardians. So okay. they will like protect their turf. So you can just throw them out with your sheep or goats, or if you have calves and it, like mountain lion or black bear come what? around, they will like chase, they'll go nuts and chase them off and they make crazy noises. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, how do they fight? They don't look like they'd be very, <laughs> I know they're very fierce. <laughs> yeah. They look kind of, I, I, I think they just posture. And, and yeah. They look like, they going. look like, uh, like an upside down cactus with no sticks. <laughs> in. That's what they look. They look like cactuses that can move. It's kind of, they're, yeah, they're, they're super, super odd. And then, uh, they're great pack animals too. So okay. a lot of like backcountry hunters will use them and they'll, you know, pack a, bull elk out of out of the back country and not have to carry it themselves kind of thing but you don't eat them don't eat them no? at least, uh, not that i'm aware of yeah i was just curious as any i mean everyone seems to have eaten everything else yet people talking about sure eating you could bears. Eat them. yeah i just <laughs> i mean you got ostrich you know jerky like why not some alpaca jerky or something things get real bad why not yeah i would assume hey if things get bad enough it's they're gonna eat you if they could oh I assume they're vegetarians. Maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> herbivores. So, yeah, herbivores, whatever they're called. Vegans. Um, <laughs> so what's the what's the plan now with the ranch? Like, do you have like a, a, a long-term goal here? Or do you just kind of wing it at each day as you, you know, so each problem comes up? Yeah, so. Um, Kids are still young, so. Yeah, exactly. So I'm trying to take this this phase of my life and live with like shorter term goals, kind of live yeah. in the moment, if you will. So, uh, you know, major problem with a military career is as soon as you get somewhere, it's like they almost six months later start talking about your next assignment. And so yeah. it's always in the back of your mind, like, like what's next? Where are they going to send me? Um, 
is my family going to like it? What are you know, what are the, yeah. the, what's the community like? And you're always kind of looking, looking forward uh, a lot. And um, so what I'm trying to do now is just focus on what am I going to do today? You know, what am I going to do next week? And I, I feel that if I, um, you know, do, do the work, make like a really high quality product, uh, you know, that I, I provide this to my community that yeah. it'll just kind of grow organically and, uh, and it should work out. All right. Last kind of transition and, and, and point, because again, you know, as your platform's grown, you, you already know this, it comes with a lot of backlash and it's, you know, it could be something incredibly innocuous and it just takes on a life of its own. Um, but one of the things that you, like I said, we, we've, we've spent about the same amount of time in, in the military. So we've seen a very big shift to how it was when we came in to kind of where it was when you left. Uh, and you know, we, we have this ongoing recruiting issue, uh, for every branch, right? It's not unique to the army, even though they get the, the biggest headlines, everyone has an issue, um, but you said something, I don't know if it was a week or two ago about, uh, I guess they were, it, it was something going on on the, on the, on the house floor about illegals having a pathway to the military. Right. Which, you know, the program's kind of always been there, you know, the, the, but this is something different. I think that they're trying to talk about specifically to address the shortfall in recruiting. And I think what you said was they want a military of illegals that will follow orders without question. What does that mean do you, do, do you think because of just the shortage that we have we're we're, we're getting to a point where we're not gonna have and I, this is something i brought up on the the last one i did with um the huntsman guy ross kelly um do you think there's enough people willing to serve that are americans in order to carry out foreign policy goals at this point, or do we really have to start looking to the illegal immigration population to fill and backfill a lot of these shortages? Yeah, you know, it's it just seems like their their focus is entirely in the wrong place. Mm. Where it's like, okay, well, why is it that the veterans of the wars of the last twenty years are telling their kids and everyone they knew not to serve? It is and, weird, right? Yeah. So instead of trying to um, maybe fix some of the structural issues that are that are driving that that natural reaction, uh, based on the, the experience people have had, like, oh well, we'll just go to this new underclass and uh, offer them this carrot, yeah. and we'll 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 bring them in and instead, since since Americans aren't willing to serve, so I, I just think that the um, their perspective is entirely, you know, their, their focus is entirely in the wrong place. Yeah. And I feel like that's the very, that's the fragile fabric. I feel like at this point, um, I think just leaving the recruiting world and seeing the reluctance of a lot of the next generation to serve now. And I do make the point, I, I counter that with the point that I've never found an issue, no matter what state it was in, of finding someone who wants to go 18 series and that's all they want to go do. And hopefully they make it like there's a lot of dudes out there that'll, that you can still find to do that in any state. Found them all over in California. Never an issue with that. It's everyone else. And there's not a lot of like 
the the world doesn't run on the 18 series, right? As much as a lot of people in our government like to think that they can just keep, you know, deploying soft forces as much as they want. That's not how this works. I think you're, you, it is what you said, right? You have this group of veterans leaving, you know, very vocal about not wanting their next, the generation, the next generation to serve their kids. They're not wanting them to do that. Not encouraging their neighbors to do this either or other family members. Um, and you bring up, you know, is, is this new underclass the way to backfill that? But man, that, that, that doesn't seem like you have a nation at that point, does it? That's like, yeah, that's, exactly. that's not an America. That's not America. Right. And it's like, oh, well, Americans don't want to go and like fight and die in Ukraine. So yeah, uh, we'll just find another group that's willing to do it. It's, you know, it's got late stage Roman empire vibes all over it. It's like, we've got big problems here at home and uh, we've got all this money and attention going all over the world. And we're not necessarily making everything better uh, where mm. we're deploying these resources either. Yeah. It kind of starts to look like a giant money grab. So, mm. you know, so I don't know how they're surprised that they have a recruiting crisis. People have yeah. been screaming it from the rooftops for the last decade saying, Hey man, like, it's bad and it's getting worse. And uh, and you're going to see a collapse if you don't kind of reorient this ship. Uh, but they don't want to do that. So they'll just find, you know, another group of people to fill that role, perhaps. Do you have any, like, if you could push the magic Dale Stark button to kind of write the ship, do you have any, is there anything you've thought about that could be done or should be? Like specifically on the recruiting issue? Or, or just, yeah, I mean, the recruiting issue kind of feeds into the bigger issues at large, right? Which is why um, there's that lack of trust from the population. And maybe it's the lack of accountability. Maybe it's just the fact that most Americans aren't asked to sacrifice anything anymore. Um, our country, from a population standpoint, is pretty large. And comparatively, our military is pretty small. So you're asking a very small portion of people to actually have any sort of skin in the game to begin with. So I feel like most people, most Americans, they're just so far detached. They're just worried about their own lives every day. Like they're not really, you know what I mean? Yeah, so. I mean, it'd be nice to hear um, like leaders, political leaders uh, to say that, uh, you know, when, when something comes up overseas, uh, if they framed it as, well, what's the best for the American people in this case? Yeah. Maybe if you felt like you had representatives that actually we're looking out for the values of the American or, you know, the well-being and represented the values of the American people and not, um, you know, foreign oligarchs. Yeah. Uh, people would start feeling like they had a little bit more buy-in to the system. Do you think we're going to get that? No. <laughs> Short answer. Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe it'll have to get a lot worse before it gets better. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Maybe no, I think you're right. Bad. Unfortunately. Yeah. It's, um, do you participate? Do you vote? Are you? I vote. Yeah. We well, should do yeah, that. I've, it's the very least. Yeah. I, I vote definitely. But, you know, you're starting to think like how much, um, how much of an impact can you really make with voting? And it's kind of depressing because it's like, it's like the one way ratchet where no matter who gets elected, it, this the culture, 
everything moves left continuously. Mm. It moves left a little bit slower under Republicans and then under Democrats, it moves left yeah. rapidly. So yeah, you know, you're just, you're looking at this, the, the society that we've inherited, that we've lived in and you're going, okay, is this what all the World War II vets sacrificed so much for? Is this the world that they wanted to see? Like, mm-hmm. are they happy with, with what we've done with that, uh, that victory? Um, and, you know, and you just, the, the honest answer for most people is probably not. Yeah. So, you know, it'd be nice. Um, you know, maybe at some point we'll, things will get so bad that they'll, there'll be some sort of economic situation that just kind of forces a snapback to reality and, um, we can stop living in fantasy land you you would think that's the natural reaction right like pendulum always swings back another direction um but you you, you bring up the point that <laughs> things are always moving left either one way they're either they're faster than one way or the other right and yeah i would argue that i don't think the republicans have anyone's best interest at heart you know no. it's just they, they go along to get along and Maybe things move a little slower than, you know, when the other party's in power. But yeah, and I, I've, I've always argued that that's our biggest issue that we have in the country currently is we're we're beholden to this two-party system that people don't feel like they actually have legitimate options. Um, you know, for Europe has a lot of flaws and a lot of faults, but I've always kind of respected the the, the European Union with the the fact that you have political parties that rise every two years. Sometimes they just change their name and they end up getting elected. You know, but it gives people more of a voice. Uh, and I I really have thought for at least the last 10 years why we don't even give that an, uh, even an option. Like anytime a third party candidate wants to run, no one considers them. You know, they're instantly discounted or they automatically they're not allowed. They're not allowed to participate in debates or or any of those things. Um, do you think we ever actually get to that part where we have a more inclusive kind of electorate and, and political parties that are more than just R's and D's. I don't know, man. It's hard to say. It yeah. seems like, like we're getting dumber, not smarter. So <laughs> well, that's true. That is a very true point. So, um, yeah, you know, it's hard to see some sort of uh civic revival right yeah. now, but who knows? Like, like things, you believe in like the cyclical view of history we just you know we've seen this tiny little slice which is our our lives and you know who is who knows what's going to happen next so i think the best thing we can do is you know be a positive force in our families in our local communities yeah get involved try to you know try to make what you can control better you know be a stand-up guy if you will or or Mm. gal and um and then what happens from there, you know, is outside of your control. So I think we can focus on all these things and um, you can get really depressed when you see the levels of corruption, you see the, the, out of the brass in the military. Yeah. Start to look a lot like politicians in uniform where um, they just get paid to say the party line. And if they say it with a smile, they move on to uh, a board seat with a defense contractor and uh, everybody wins except for the American people. So, um, you know, but we can't control any of that. So um, I think the best thing we can do is focus on what we can control 
and uh, again, have a strong family, strong community from there. And then uh, that's about the best you can do. Would you be more concerned if you didn't take the path that you did to where, so you, you know, like I said, you're, you're, you're on your ranch, you have your local community that you work with, uh, as opposed to someone who maybe feels like they don't have those options, right? Cause they're, you know, they're stuck in a major city and this is kind of like their vertical prison that they pay to live in their $4,000 a month apartment. Right. Um, your situation is obviously very different, I think, than from the local perspective and from that angle, uh, would you think you'd feel differently if it was reversed or do you think like these people really think that that's the best way to live? And whereas you're like, Hey man, I'm just trying to gotta keep it. I got to check on my cows in the morning. I don't got time to worry about all this <laughs> other shit. <laughs> yeah, dude. I mean, if you want to, um, if someone wants to live in a, in the matrix yeah. and yeah, uh, you know, if they take the blue pill and live that life, then, um, who am I to say they shouldn't, but, um, but for me, it's kind of goes without question, you know, without saying it's like, it's just, we don't need a lot to really thrive. Yeah, it's like yeah. food, water, shelter, community, mm. where's your power come from? So yeah, it's like in the short term, it's a, it's a good life. It teaches your kids responsibility. You know, we talk about, um, you know, we talk about things that they're, they're, they experience it. Uh, I think are really good for them. Like um, when an animal gets sick and dies, you know, it's like they're exposed to these things that go through the emotions. And so they're not just completely protected yeah. from the real world. They get to experience yeah. it in these little small scale. And so I, I truly believe what we're doing is really, really good for our family. Um, I, you know, I know it's true because I'm here and I live it and I experience yeah. it and I've seen the other side, you know? Yep. Um, and so what other people do, you know, I can't control it. They're, they're going to go their own path and we're going to do what's best for us. And, uh, we're going to enjoy it. You know, nothing's we're not doing anything out of fear or, uh, or just worry of some imminent collapse. It's, it's just building a healthy lifestyle. And so, um, yeah, we're just going to continue what we're doing. And it does make me feel good that, you know, water comes from a mountain spring that runs right by my house. You That's know, we just collect cool. it and gets pumped That's up really to the cool. faucets. Yeah, it's just, it's wonderful. And then, uh, you know, our food is growing in the greenhouse and in the garden boxes and it's grazing grass right now. I mean, we could go like months without having to get to go to a grocery store we essentially don't have to go to a grocery Man, store just life. get kind of luxury items like yeah you know it's nice it's nice to have access to a grocery store to get right. different spices and stuff but yeah we don't we don't need to go like we have everything we need out here so that's cool uh, so yeah so it, it does feel good it, feel, it feels like the proper way to live at least for us it's like you know it grounds you to the natural world you 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 wake up all the animals on you know on the ranch wake up about 30 minutes before sunrise so the rooster starts crowing uh everyone's you know ready to eat ready to move and so you know it, you do that and then you have to you get up early you kind of get up with the sun you're highly tuned in 
to your environment. So you're looking at the sun exposure, you're looking at the temperature, the rain, is the grass growing? All all these things are just, I feel good uh, for, you know, the body and the soul. Uh, you go through your day, you get to the end of the day, you've worked hard and it's early, you know, maybe nine o'clock and you lay down and you just crash because you're, you're tired. And then you wake up and do it again the next day. So it's like being deployed, man. Exactly. <laughs> A little bit. <laughs> Never people are trying to kill you. Yeah, <laughs> just alpacas and llamas and shit. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's just you know, it's just a, to me, it's a it's a really nice way to live. Um, I feel like it's a great blessing for my family. Yeah. And uh, you know that the food we eat is so much healthier than anything you could even buy at Whole Foods yeah. or anywhere yeah. else. Like yeah, I agree. Um, so it's it's just a it's really a privilege and a blessing and. Uh, you know, if I can kind of give some information or inspiration to anybody else that's thinking about doing it, then then yeah. I'm happy to do so. But I'm certainly not trying to convince anybody that they need to do right. what I'm doing. Yeah, that's awesome, dude. That's great, man. A great American story right there. Dale Stark, <laughs> America's A-10 pilot and now America's uh, favorite rancher. Seven Barrel <laughs> Ranch. Appreciate you hanging out with me, brother. Dude, thanks for uh, inviting me. It's it good talking with you. Absolutely. All right, man. Let me uh, hit this up.